Welcome to the Rhythms Podcast. I'm the editor of the magazine, Brian Wise. Wintertime in Melbourne means it's Melbourne International Film Festival time. And as usual, the festival has a very strong music documentary component. There are films about Michael Gadinsky, one of the feature documentaries of the entire film festival, David Bridie and Talek, The Indigo Girls, Anton Corbin, Nick Cave, Judy Sill, Little Richard, and there's a very powerful documentary on Joan Baez, titled Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, directed by Karen O'Connor, Miri Navasky, and Maeve O'Boyle. Joan Baez is renowned as a folk music legend, but she was vocal in more ways than one. She was a champion of the civil rights movement, in part due to her friendship with Martin Luther King Jr., and she participated in the 1963 March on Washington. Her illustrious career, which amongst many other achievements helped to launch that of Bob Dylan before their relationship gave way, overshadowed her public and private battles, including anxiety as a child and trauma therapies confronting revelations uncovered later in her life. Premiering at the Berlinale and bookended with the musician's final tour in 2018, Joan Baez' I Am A Noise utilises a treasure trove of sources to recount her eventful life, diary entries, drawings and paintings, generous interviews and vividly preserved archival footage. The directors have formed a well-rounded and frank portrait of an iconic artist against the backdrop of one of the most radical periods of the 20th century. Award-winning producer Karen O'Connor has been working in television for more than 20 years, mainly on the Frontline series for PBS, and she's also been a friend of Joan Baez for many of those years. And I spoke to Karen about the documentary. Karen, thanks very much for joining me. Congratulations on the documentary, which takes a bit of a different approach to the life of a musician, and we'll talk about that in a minute. You've known Joan Baez since... 1989 so I guess it would be a natural that you would want to make a documentary about her but did being a friend make it a little bit more difficult to be objective how did that all work out it's a really good question and a great place to start it makes certainly makes it made it more complicated in many different ways uh I Joan and I had known each other as you said from late 1980s I wasn't necessarily nor was my co-director Mary Navasky and then Mavo Boyle thinking about doing a documentary about Joan Baez. We'd done mainly social issue documentary films before that. And um, it was only when Joan began to talk about a last tour and the idea of a, a woman who had been famous for 60 plus years, almost all of her life, coming to the end seemed potentially interesting, Brian, in a way, whether she was my friend or not. Uh, that there might be something worth exploring there. And so we began many conversations with Joan about that and how to keep a firewall actually between uh, us editorially and um, and uh, on the other hand, take it full advantage of the history and the friendship there in terms of access and trust. But it was really important to Miri and me at the beginning that we did have editorial control. And so at the very start, we had that conversation with Joan and said, look, if we do this, it's important that that we you you don't have control over the film. It's not a celebrity vanity project in that way. It would have to be something very different and unconventional. And uh, and she was ready for that at this point in her life. And she agreed with us as well that if we were going to do this, let's do something other than a conventional celebrity bio. Let's do something that's um, 
that's potentially more in depth that shows her kind of life in all of its complications, um, its successes as well as its its lows, its the light and the dark, the all of it. So that's what that's what interested us. But 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 the friendship certainly played a role in it in every way, as you can imagine. There are things that we would never have had access to because of the friendship, for sure, all along the way. And oh. so we we could embrace that within the filmmaking and use that in a way to give the film a, a certain kind of immersive, intimate feel that wouldn't have been possible, I don't think, without that long history. I imagine that as a friend of someone who's very famous, you don't want to cross that line and you probably wanted to keep that your what you were doing separate and, and probably didn't you know think about making a documentary for a while. But I wonder if there was at some point when you were talking to Joan about her life and there are a number of amazing revelations in this film, you thought, oh boy, this would make a great documentary that would be a little bit different to every other documentary that we usually see about musicians. That's really interesting as well. Yes, I think there were moments of that. When Joan talked about the beginning wanting a kind of leave an honest legacy, and in this film, as you know, she's talking about things she's never talked about before publicly. And I had a sense of what it, that might mean in terms of her psychiatric history, but I didn't realize the degree to which she was really ready to be revealing, whether it was... Um, the sibling rivalry and the complications of fame within her family, whether it was uh, the challenges of motherhood, whether it was um, Dylan breaking her heart, whether it was the bus amnesty bus leaving without her at this period in which her career had really dipped. Uh, she meant it. She was really ready in a way to take a, a completely unflinching, unvarnished look at her own life. And um, in many spots along the way, I thought, I haven't seen this. This is different from what is a conventional bio, certainly of somebody famous. I've never seen, I'd never seen, and I don't think Miriam may have had it either. I don't think I'd ever seen a documentary about a well-known person where that person was is as revealing and kind of honest as Joan is throughout this film. There, Joan's influenced a lot of people, uh, including Patty Smith, who's one of the executive producers on this film, I notice. Yes. Patty and Joan are dear friends. They've had a, a interesting and wonderful and moving history. Uh, Patty came in late in the process, I would say, but wanted to do whatever she could do by lending her name to the project and helping us launch it into the world. She's um, a great admirer and a great friend and a generous and um, and kind person. And so we took we we took full advantage of her willingness to be a part of the film. So, but you didn't take advantage of her to the extent of interviewing her. No, you 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 see that was a big decision in the filmmaking. We have no famous people talking about other famous people talking about Joan. We decided not to do that, good or bad. Some people will be disappointed, but we wanted to keep it keep it really framed by those who knew her intimately and as they happened along in her story. So, so no, you don't unfortunately have a see or hear, Patty. Well, you mentioned that. I mean, a lot of documentaries do become, as you said, a hagiography or basically a public relations exercise. So this takes a little bit of a different approach, as you've mentioned there. You also had access to an amazing amount of archival 
material, yeah. thanks to Joan and her family. And some of that material, including tapes, very intimate uh, audio tapes that Joan recorded, etc. And I think her sisters as well are surprisingly uh, open. That, that also was uh, another point in the process where, to your question earlier, was there a point when we thought, oh, this could be an amazing film? It was when we went to the storage unit and um, opened that door <laughs> and saw what was in there. And that scene in the film where Joan is opening the storage unit, it, she'd never been there before. It's true. She'd never seen it. Really? Who, so who, that, had, who had kept the storage unit for her? I mean, had her son done it or what, how did that come about? She's had, she's had a trusted assistant for oh. 40 years. She's had people who've worked with her who handle all that. So she, she'd never been in there, never before that scene. And so she had some sense of what, uh, some letters and photographs, but had no idea what was in there. Nor I had some idea that I knew her mother and father had saved everything for all of the kids, um, but I had no idea of the extent of it. And then, um, and then the layers of it just kept kind of revealing themselves as we dug into all those boxes. And it was just this gold mine. It really was this trove. Her father filmed everything, recorded everything. Her mother saved every letter. Uh, Joan has all the things that people that she sent to people. She had very few things that she kept. She lost things over the years and all these gems. But there was certainly it was an it was an embarrassment of riches, honestly. Yeah. It changed the course of the film, actually, finding that archive, because we realized we could then use we had a new way to kind of use the past and the present and to kind of interweave it throughout the film. And ideally, we wanted to use the archive to represent how Joan was experiencing things at the time. So you hear her, you know, 21 years old, sending the audio tape letters home about the March on Washington or uh, or Bloody Sunday, whatever it was. It was what she happened to, how she was feeling and experiencing it and not told decades later with the kind of remove of, you know, all those decades. So that was a big that was a big uh, shift in how we structured the film as well. Joan is remarkably honest about her emotional struggles, especially in her marriage to David Harris, but it's it's wonderful how her current relationship with her son, Gabriel, is shown. It must have been difficult for her to talk about some of this for you. Uh, it was. It was difficult. Uh, it was both difficult and I think cathartic, Brian, at the same time. But yes, I think, uh, and then... Difficult. We've done these festival screenings. I think she experienced it differently each time. It's one thing to do it and then to watch yourself in a room filled with other people who are taking it in for the first time. Um, as she, so I think it's it was deeply moving and um, and complicated for her. But uh, I, she doesn't regret any of it. She feels proud of of what she's done with it the re response she's received in terms of this psychiatric um, issues and her honesty around those have been kind of incredible for her. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's been deeply emotional. She says something that I think would apply to a lot of musicians about her relationship. She said she finds it difficult to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but she finds it easy to have a relationship with 2000 people when she's on stage. True. <laughs> True. It's true. It's another one of those I, I noticed. Um, I've seen other artists and people of all kinds, you know, kind of nodding and responding to that. It's true. Again, I think that isn't 
uh, unusual with people who are mm. this center stage, but she is incredibly honest about it. It's one of my, it's one of those moments in the film where it's true. Yeah, she's much more comfortable and she can have a quote intimate evening with, you know, 2000 people instead of the hard work of really doing one. Of course, for some filmmakers, it would have been a temptation to concentrate on the relationship with Bob Dylan, wouldn't it? Yes. But I want to talk about, there's there's one amazing scene in the film where they're sitting together outside for the photographers and Joan looks up at him and you can tell just from that look that the relationship is over and that, that almost captures the whole thing in that in that particular scene there, doesn't it? It really does. It's very astute of you. You see him do this too, you know, where he's he's mm. looking. So she's touching him. You can tell he doesn't want to be touched. She even describes how she didn't belong. You know, this weird folky. She describes herself who had no place there. I We struggle with how much of Dylan to include in the film, actually. Uh, I, we worried we had too much. <laughs> so, yeah. On the other hand, what we have, I think is winning and really amazing from the early romance where you see them to the to the later part. But I think you're absolutely right in that moment. It captures it all. Um, you you see it, you feel it, um, and um, it's a it's a it's it's there just as you described. You see it all, and you see her looking afraid too. For me, you mm. see she knows mm. she knows already. And again, there's another moment where people have really responded her honesty about that that she just was devastated and couldn't get herself out of it and couldn't leave, even though as everybody was telling her to leave, she couldn't. And then when she, you know, turns to the camera and says, hello, Bob, <laughs> to, to sort of take her moment back a little bit, you know, all those years later. So. Well, his music is present uh, throughout the film. But one of the things that struck me in, in the relationship that I'd always thought of her as being much older than Bob Dylan, but in fact... They're, they're only separated by a few months, but she seems she seems so much older and more mature. It's true. Yeah, she does. She does, especially those early photos and things. Mm. And yeah, and when she's, you know, when she again said he needs, he needed a mother, he needed somebody to take a bath, he need, and all the things that they, these two creatures who kind of, you know, came together at the time. But it is true. You do think of her as much, much older when not, not at all. Yeah. Because because when he emerged on the scene, she was already very well known, wasn't she? I mean, she she was famous from a very young age. She was the star then, yeah. And she is the one who introduced him, sort sort of brought him around, as she said, to her concerts, introduced him to the Newport crowd, and and was a huge part in the beginning of his his career, yeah. And then I think now understands, you know, and then he experienced his fame, and I'm sure just wanted that distance. It was. She was devastated about it for a long time and angry, but there, the connection was obviously still deep. And so she went on rolling thunder with him and sort of circled back years later. But it's still, as you see, his painting in her house and mm, yeah, uh, and the music. And she's she's come to, a, I think, a pretty happy place about how lucky it was to have the time that they had together. I think she realised it um, very early on that his fame had gone to quite another level, didn't she? Yeah, she did. I think London was really that eye-opener for her, for sure. Because it had been this very special thing between them and then that shift in power 
which also starts to happen. And then I found it interesting. This was, a, I hadn't thought about it before until she mentioned it. Also, she is this kind of weird folky who didn't belong in that world that she calls it this, you know, the drugs, the boys club. She, she lost her place. You know, he, it had moved on to something else. And he was, uh, you know, it was an explosion of fame for him. And so he got increasingly isolated and, um, and she was more and more removed. And uh, I think it broke her heart, as she said, but it happens. Joan had two sisters, Pauline and Mimi, both quite different. Can you talk about her relationship with them? Because that's an essential part of the film as well. And there is a revelation towards the end of the film. I don't know how much we should tell people about about this, but it is quite shocking, really, in, in many ways. But um, Mimi, of course... Um, followed in Joan's footsteps in the, in the music industry and a lot of people will want to rediscover Richard and Mimi Farina's yeah. music, won't they? So can you talk about Joan's relationship with them? Yes. So Pauline was Joan's older sister by four years and then um, Mimi, her younger sister. Pauline and Joan were very close at the beginning of their lives and then as Joan uh, became successful, Pauline, as she describes it, made herself invisible. She withdrew. She retreated. Fame, Joni, as she said, became overwhelming. She was too much to take. Pauline was beautiful, smart, creative in her own ways, but also shy and not at all ambitious or competitive um, in the ways that Joan and Mimi were. Joan, Mimi was beautiful, wanted to be a dancer. She and Joan were very close, almost twin-like in some ways. Uh, but also a, a fundamental rivalry, even from the beginning. Again, Mimi, very honest as well as Pauline was, talking about um, copycatting Joan so that it kind of thwarted her own growth. Uh, Mimi, at a very young age, married Dick Farina, partly, I think, to escape from the, from the family containment uh, and ended up with a very successful career with, with Dick Farina until his sudden death on Mimi's 21st birthday. Mimi was beautiful, dark, and always troubled. Both Joan and Mimi were in um, were in and out of psychiatrists for most of their life. Pauline not. Pauline was found her solace in nature and our other artistic things. Joan, as you see in the film, struggles with a kind of inner darkness, a kind of high and low most of her life, um, what she called her demons uh, that started very early in her life. Mimi as well. There was, as Joan described, a, a certain beauty and darkness to Mimi as well. So they were both similar in that way and kind of mirrored a lot of what happened um, later in their lives. I think also it's clear that Mimi was a little jealous of Joan and I think Joan felt jealous of Mimi at the same time. And Mimi was beautiful and stunning and all the boys wanted her and Joan was never as confident in her own looks. Um, so I think it I think it went both ways. On the other hand, they were they loved each other. It was a very complicated love. They were like they were like each other's person, but it was always tense and always strained. Mimi made a little bit of music after Dick died but it would have it's interesting to speculate on what they would have done had he lived isn't it yeah yeah i found the moments with them on the screen it just it's a it's just pop so i felt the same i think oh my god look at those two and their relationship was um complicated but uh, it is interesting i felt the same i wonder what would have happened N neither joan nor 
Pauline nor anyone in Mimi's family thinks the marriage would have ever held. (laughs) But what that might have meant for music, I don't know. We said the relationship was complicated. I think all the relationships in this film were complicated. But um, we're talking about that surprising revelation at, at the end of towards the end of the film it brings up a whole contentious argument that's been raging about therapy doesn't it and it's a, a, because jones the the parents think that the, the uh, revelations were prompted by the therapist don't they the therapist rather than having actually taken place yes they do it uh they believe it came out of in Joan's case, hypnosis mm. from a therapist specializing in hypnosis and Mimi as well. In the film, we distinguish, and it's subtle. I'm not sure if it goes by people or not. The difference, there are two conscious memories that one that Mimi has and one that Joan has, and the others are not conscious in that way. They come out of therapeutic sessions, usually hypnosis in Joan's case. It's a complicated family story, the accusations of abuse that come, that her parents deny. We dealt with it as um, complicated way as we could, Brian, by laying out how each experienced it and viewed it. And so that was the, so, you know, the overused Rashomon phrase, um, but wanting to tell it from those different points of views and not be conclusive in the filmmaking, but let people make of it what they want to, knowing that Joan firmly, you know, believes she's been um, healed and helped and um, has reached a wonderful place in her life because of confronting those demons. So, I mean, in its own way, the film is a, a, an investigation into memory mm-hmm. and its complications and its fallibility and how it changes and whatever its meaning is. Um, But yeah, I think that's right. We all bring to it our own experiences of what it is to try to remember our own lives, you know. So, uh, and yes, this was this this kind of therapy, this recovery therapy, is was very controversial. Probably still is within some you know some circles. So, what do you think Joan's legacy will be? I mean, she's retired basically. You know, a lot of people like Bob Dylan still going, and she retired. Um, what do you think her legacy will be? Because whenever you think of protest movements, etc., you think of Joan Baez, don't you? I mean, she's such a mix, isn't she? Her It's her activism as much as her music. It is mm. the combination of both those things that have that's given her, her certainly her greatest happiness in her life, but also her place. It's a good question. I, I mean, I know her hope now is that she's leaving an honest legacy, as she says. So maybe that will, maybe this film, if it's remembered at all, who knows, uh, will play a part in that. That this is a woman who, who didn't hold back from the even the harder truths of her life as she experienced them, the highs and the lows. I guess. I mean, she doesn't. She's not a woman who she does. There's not a lot of. There's not BS in anything she tells you. Um, from the smallest to the largest, from the most painful to the most joyous. She does try to live a life with some, you know, with truth at its core, hers, her experience, so, and decency, I guess. I don't know. I think she probably will be remembered for the activism. She'll always, it'll be her marches with MLK and James Baldwin and the Vietnam War and David Harris and Dylan, I think, you know, those will be, it'll, I think that'll be, Yes, you know, she's traveled the world and done her part and caught in 
many causes all over the globe. Probably she hopes her legacy will be some genuine, you know, person committed to nonviolence all of her life, that she never wavered in that. I think that still matters to her, Brian, whether it's, you know, passe now and nobody nobody talks about it or thinks it's possible. She she never expected to see any change in her lifetime, but I think that wasn't her concern. Her concern was to follow her moral compass as best she could. And I think she's done that. Well, one of the things that comes out in the film when you see it, the activism in the 60s, many of the issues that she was talking about, are still they're still there now. Yeah, you do feel it. I felt the same. I couldn't get over it when we take her back to Montgomery mm-hmm. and you see it. It just, you feel it the same way. It's true. It's true. It was, it was um, devastating in that way. Well, listen, it's been fabulous to talk to you and uh, congratulations again on the documentary. And uh, I'm sure people will be looking forward to seeing it at that, our film festival here and uh, all the best. How's Joan these days? Is you in con- I imagine you're in co- constant contact with her, are you? She she's doing really well. She's Great. painting up a storm. Um, <laughs> she was just in Ukraine with a friend. Uh, yeah, went there for a, a, a sort of peace mission, bringing working with people who are on the ground, providing support to children and families who've been devastated by the war. So she's still doing the good works in that way. She's actually had a great time with the film, sending it out to the world. So that's been nice for her. Thank you, Brian. Thank I you. enjoyed these these questions very much it thanks. was uh it really really thoughtful so thanks, i appreciate thanks, it all the best okay. thanks karen bye Thanks. Thanks for joining me on this Rhythms podcast where we were talking to Karen O'Connor, one of the directors of Joan Baez, I Am A Noise, showing at the Melbourne International Film Festival. The screenings are on Sunday the 13th of August at 4.15pm and Sunday the 20th of August at 1.15pm if you're living in Melbourne. There's also a travelling component of the film festival and no doubt the film will be screening online at some stage in coming months. Thanks for joining me on this Rhythms podcast. I'll be back again next week. You can find out more about the magazine or read reviews and music news at rhythms.com.au.